It was more about coming home than what my role could be in Vermont or the relationships that I could have or do have now. You're listening to Happy Vermont, a podcast about people and places in the Green Mountain State. Along Lake Champlain near the little city of Virgins is Basin Harbor, a family-owned resort that's been around since the 1880s when Ardelia Beach purchased the property. Since then, the resort has weathered the Great Depression, wars, pandemics, and recessions, and through it all managed to thrive. Descendant Sarah Morris grew up at Basin Harbor, where she made lifelong friends and developed a strong work ethic under the guidance of her parents, Penny Beach and the late Peter Morris. Now a fifth-generation host of the resort, Sarah can be found helping guests in the dining room, answering questions in the main lobby, and everything in between. Open May through October, Basin Harbor includes dozens of cottages, a couple of restaurants, a tiny airport, and offers many things to do, from lake cruises and paddleboarding to golf, swimming, and tennis. Sarah, who attended Cornell and worked in the hospitality industry in places like Boston and New York, decided to return to the resort 10 years ago. As the resort gears up for another busy season, Sarah reflects on her time at Basin Harbor, what the future holds, and what she loves most about the place she calls home. Here's Sarah. Basin Harbor started as a working farm in the 1800s, and actually my family lived up the road. And my great-great-aunt Ardelia was engaged to marry a gentleman who passed in the Civil War. And at that time, she moved out to Iowa, became a school administrator, and was sort of out of the area. And her family let her know that the original farm, which is our main lodge building, came up in a tax sale. And she bought it in 1882. We have no idea where she got the money to do that. But she moved back and she wrote a letter, which we have. We can't tell who it's written to, but it's a close friend. And she said, I'm going to expand the windows in the main lodge building. I'm going to put chairs on the lawn. And my intention is to have people come and stay here and sit and watch the lake go by, more or less. She said, don't tell anyone what I'm doing. And that might have been because... Our homestead building was actually operating as an inn at the same time. She was a woman. She ended up marrying a gentleman who was an entrepreneur in the Virgins area. But so she was very much forward thinking and and a bit ahead of her time. So she bought the main lodge in 1882 and in 1886 began taking summer boarders. At that time, it was a 200 acre farm. They very much still operated the farm life. That's how they provided the food and resources for guests. In some cases, the guests went out and helped on the farm. They never seemed to come back after lunch, but it was a very clean air, recreational get out of the city space for people to come to. And over the years, uh, different family members have gotten involved. My great-grandfather was attending the University of Vermont in their agriculture program, which at the time was free because agriculture was so important to the economy of Vermont. And in 1909, Ardelia Uh, unexpectedly passed away. And my great-grandfather convinced his family to buy out her widower and transition the ownership of the resort at that time. My great-grandfather had a friend who was down in the Miami area, and he said, you have to come see what's happening down here. It was sort of this boom of development and hospitality happening there. So he 
fashioned a Model T car into a bit of a camper and took his family of five, of which my grandfather was a babe in arms. He was. We have a photo of him as a toddler being carried. And they drove straight down to Florida. And you, basically, there were no interstate maps or interstate roads. So you had to get to one town and say, how do I go south? And they pointed and you just sort of leapfrogged your way down the coast. It took them weeks to get there. And when they did, they said, wow, this is transformative. And I believe my great-grandfather then spent every winter in Florida thereafter. So it really, it spoke to him. So he came back, this is the 1920s, and said, we've got some work to do. We can do so much here. So they started building the golf course. They actually, in the late 1920s, instituted our children's program uh, and really started transitioning away from the farm aspect and more towards hospitality. So we started building individual cottages that really started as wooden tent platforms and evolved into what are now two and three bedroom cottages on the lake. We started acquiring more property in the area and really just forged ahead. And uh, my great-grandfather was really instrumental in the full design of the resort as it is today, although it wasn't designed on any kind of master plan. So right. there are some idiosyncrasies and things that we would never do again today, but they are where they are. And yeah. so we work around them. How many cottages are there on the property? There's 74 cottages and they actually range from studios to three bedrooms. So quite a bit of variety of space. I always picture a Sears and Roebuck catalog where you could order things out West. And I always say that our cottages weren't built in that kind of model. So they all have very different bone structures. In many cases, the lumber, the trees that were felled in order to create the cottages where their stumps were, were the foundation points for the cottages. So oh, wow. you might've otherwise moved it 10 feet, but if the stump was there, you put it where, <laughs> where you had structural support. So they're each very uniquely different. And our guests, many of them come back year after year and stay in the exact same accommodation. So they're used to the quirks. Uh, and it can be interesting having new guests come and sort of learn about what their options are at the resort. Yeah, definitely. Well, the place has a, such a special feel and it's very unique. It's not like any other place I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And you spent uh, a good part of your childhood here. I mean, you, your childhood was here. We actually, my family did grow up or I grew up rather. Yeah. <laughs> my family has a house right here on campus. So I grew up here spending my summers here. And my mom worked very hard and was not around a whole lot in terms of that. So I actually grew up in the kids program alongside our guests and became fast friends with many of them and I'm still friends with a lot of them today. Wow. That's awesome. And you grew up here and went to high school in the area. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you left and worked in the hospitality industry. And then you came back. So I'd love for you to sort of walk us through the experience of being here growing up, you know, being in the, the kids' programs and spending your summers here and then leaving and then eventually returning. So many people do that. And it's I find it so fascinating. So just walk us through that a little bit. So growing up here, we refer to our location here at Basin Harbor as the Basin Harbor bubble. When we're in season and people are coming in from out of state, it sort of creates this ecosystem that doesn't exist three miles down the road. We have staff housing here on campus. Most of our guest population does come from out of state during the summer months. So it really brings together a population that wouldn't otherwise be here. The environment here is very active, stimulating. Everyone is outdoors. There's great culinary here. People are coming together really from all around the world because we have an international staff base. 
And so growing up, that was my summer. It was active. I was engaged as a young child in the kids program. At age 13, I started working here. So I would say I grew up pretty quickly in the sense that work life was always in front of me and encouraged within the family business. And then contrast that with my winters where I went to the local elementary and high school and it would just it would transition from what felt like a more adult life in the summer back to a more age appropriate kid life in the winter months. In many cases, not seeing my local friends during the summer because there was such activity and engagement here at the resort in the summer months. So that was sort of my upbringing and really learned at a young age the value of working and working with people and consider myself an extrovert. (laughs) My mom and uncle were general managers when I was growing up, and my mother really took the front of house, guest-facing, guest relations role at the resort. My uncle took more of the back of house facilities engineering. So I grew up having dinner every night in our main dining room in the summer months, standing to greet guests as they came into the dining room and really learning how to be that hostess, Mm -hmm. representing being a face of the resort. So the idea of doing that outside of the resort was very natural. I would go to conferences with my mother and sit at a table without her with a group of other general managers and engage in conversation for the evening. And she'd sort of peek over and be like, are you all right over there? And it just was natural to me growing up. And it was what you did. So When I went to school, I wasn't sure initially that I wanted to be in hospitality as a career. And my parents really pushed for, well, what are you going to do? You know, don't just go to school for the sake of it. Have an idea of the degree you'll be going towards. They encouraged me after much discussion to go to Cornell's hotel school and said, if you hate it, you can leave after a year. But it's a great foundation of business education and Again, you can, if you start there, you can go anywhere, even if it's your sophomore year. So I went there and thought that I would open a bakery, thought I wouldn't come back to the resort. It was like, okay, great. I like hospitality, but maybe not here. And then I spent my first summer after my freshman year in Colorado working at another resort and really realized how much I missed the summer environment here, missed seeing friends, missed the social aspects of it. And came back in August at the end of the summer before going back to college. And my grandfather was having a birthday party on one of our lakeside venues. There were probably 60 people that were friends and family. The sun was setting. It was a hot August day and something clicked. And I said, this is what it's all about. These people that are here, the setting, the feeling that's here, I already knew didn't exist elsewhere. And so that, you know, sort of an unofficial moment of I'll be back here someday. And how old were you then? So I was 19, which, you know, I, I it's been a bit of a theme. I've started working so young that I've like always been working and chasing and going after that I don't know that other people have that kind of clarity. And also it, it was both clarity and not. <laughs> you know, it was it was a someday plan, but not an exactly when. So I proceeded to work elsewhere every summer between college, really taking my parents' encouragement to use it as a time to, in hindsight, be vulnerable and just try new things, but also to just say, there's a school connection, there's a family connection, whatever it may be that allows me to to go into an environment that I would never go to. And it's interesting because so many people I talk to they grow up in Vermont and they can't wait to leave. And then, you know, maybe in their late twenties or mostly thirties and forties come back. And it's interesting with you because you, that seed was planted kind of early when you're like, this is what I want someday. 
What made you come back? It was, you know, it's home. So it was in a lot of ways comforting in that sense. And I knew there was going to be support there. I don't think I realized when I came home what being in Vermont could be for me ultimately. In terms of the groups that I've gotten involved with, I I serve on a, a number of different boards and that wasn't on my radar at all at the time. It was more about coming home than what my role could be in Vermont or the relationships that I could have or do have now. I don't know that I, when I came home in 2012, that it was like, you're going to be here forever, but it was comfortable. And I knew that I could, it was like a safe place to go to. It wasn't like moving to Montana to save a resort there or somewhere that I'd never been to before. I think it's just so interesting. You leave Vermont and you're like, oh, I can't wait to get out of here. And you go. And then you're like, oh, not every place is like Mm -hmm. this. And just that pull towards home is just so strong at certain points in our lives. And especially Vermont. There's just like, I always thought like kind of, oh, everybody, every place is probably kind of like this. And then it's like, oh, no. Yeah. I also, I'm not so naive to not realize that it's a privilege to be able to come home. I think a lot of why young people leave the state is because the wage and the income potential isn't there. I think it's really important to see what is outside the state to Mm -hmm. appreciate why you're here. But I also know that not every family business could afford to bring the next generation home into a role. You know, it's sort of like mom or dad are running it and therefore that fills the capacity and there's other qualified people that are already in positions. It's not like someone was fired in order to allow me to come home. And so I understand that not every next generation of Vermont business owner has the ability to come home. Yeah, that's true. And talking about Bays and Harbor, how is the Bays and Harbor of your childhood different from the Bays and Harbor of your life now? I think when I was younger, I took for granted or didn't see how the business operated and things just happened, right? So our guests came back year after year, Uh, staff magically appeared. There were enough spoons in the dining room when you went in for a meal. It just sort of these elements were there. And now having been involved in so many areas of the operation, It's really helped me see external impacts on the business, the people who've helped us keep it in operation, not only the guests that return year after year, but the long-term and in some cases newer staff that we have, the guests who are here, the parallel businesses, which are both leading and lagging indicators for how our business is going to run. Being seasonal, it can feel very cyclical, but also there are these sort of peaks and valleys of things that make it easier for us or harder just based on what's going on in the economy and really more of the ecosystem of the resort. So, right. And I'm sure it is, as a kid, you're not really thinking about all the logistics and all you know that make things happen or mm-hmm. all the people that it takes to make something yeah. run smoothly. It also, I mean, I had a, a great work ethic when I started working here. So the idea of calling out for a shift was just not even something that I thought about. And When I was younger, I had a mentality of if I can do it, anybody can do it. You know, if I'm willing to roll up my sleeves and get in the dish pit, anybody should be willing to wash dishes. If I can serve this many tables at one time, anybody should be able to. And that's evolved to really realize people's abilities and and skills and, and in some cases realizing that I can't do that anymore. You know, there's a sustainability and and a, a stamina when you're younger, but it, 
I had a lens where it's like, this is just what you do, as opposed to uh, people that may not have as much of a a tie or a relationship with the business. And it's like, oh, the the weather's great. I'm going to go skip today and (laughs) go to the waterfall or whatever it might be. So. And now your title at Bays and Harbor is fifth generation host. So tell me what that is and what the job entails. Yeah, so it it really is that hostess model. Uh, our family has an unspoken motto of whatever it takes, and so it's it's a bit of shifting hats throughout the season, but really it's guest facing. It's a bit of a cruise director helping orient not only our returning guests but our new guests to what's available at the resort. I serve as our lead concierge in the summer months. My desk is in our main lobby. It's really, you're as likely to come to me as you are the front desk and being able to answer questions, talk about renovations that we're doing, future plans for the resort, a history of the resort for anyone who's unfamiliar with us. And because of my experience in a variety of our departments, I can as much orient a couple that's thinking about a wedding with us, talk about gluten-free items on our menu, explain what the process of learning to water ski is, just a whole host of elements there. In the off season, I focus a lot on our local relationships. I mentioned I serve on a number of boards and really consider myself a liaison, not only in Vermont, but regionally. Uh, My mom is still involved very much on a national level for the resort, but it's important to us to be models of hospitality, not only in Vermont, but the U.S. And when people come and they see you at that concierge desk, do you let them know that you're a family member, that you're a fifth generation family member at, at Bays and Harbor, or does that just sort of come about in conversation? Yeah, we're we're fairly modest, so <laughs> no, I don't always lead <laughs> with family. that at all. Uh, but it is on my name tag, so usually I'll be chatting with people, and they're sort of you know assessing and taking in all the information, and they'll look over and say, "What does that mean?" I bet and that's fascinating to people. It is, and it it's a quirky enough title that it doesn't immediately tell you what's going on. And I think that, you know, the history of our family being here for so long is so important to the story of Basin Harbor that it's something we're happy to talk about once it comes up, but certainly not something we lead with. So this is a family-owned resort, and there's been five generations of your family that have helped to run the resort. What do you think the future holds for Basin Harbor? Just speaking of that family piece. Mm-hmm. You know, what is remarkable to me is how different the resort has been for each of those generations and how much the world has changed. We didn't have a website until the 1990s. We actually didn't have an operating budget until then. We typically will say that if it hasn't happened, we haven't seen it. You know, every aspect of we were open in 1918, we were open during recessions, we have had health scares where, you know, just you name it, we have seen it at the resort. I was on a call the other day and someone said, the past is becoming the future. And that really resonated with me because we don't have televisions here. A lot of the Uh, traditional elements of vacationing with your family still exist here. I think that that's becoming relatable across a number of industries, and we're seeing the same here at Basin Harbor. We've long felt that the resort and all that it has to offer will only increase in value over time, and not just monetary value for our family, but holding on to large open spaces, really helping maintain that open air, time away, in some cases, poor cell service, which helps you disconnect. Uh, And all those things are valuable to the modern vacationer. We have a new generation of 
guests that are creating traditions for their families. So in a world where we're disconnected by our devices and work leaks into our home life, I think we really offer a place for people to truly get away. And I think that holding on to that is the future for Basin Harbor versus modernizing, adding too much connectivity. We're blessed being remote and where we are and sort of just really leaning into that. Is, is what our future holds. Yeah, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. And is there, because you've seen so much happen here and the resort's been here a long time, are there any like quirky or little known facts about Basin Harbor that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think a, a lot of people, particularly Vermonters, come here for one thing, dining or a meeting or a wedding, and they only see that aspect of what they're coming here for. We are, in essence, a small municipality. We have, we get all of our water out of Lake Champlain and we treat it. So our drinking water is Lake Champlain water, which all the more makes us concerned about its health and vitality. We also treat all of our own wastewater here on campus. So we're engaged in that and have people routinely looking at it as as they do any system to make sure that it's to code and all of that. But uh, funny stories like our guests smelling the manure being spread on the agricultural fields around us and thinking there's a serious leak or something with our septic system. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I think it's it's really the inner workings that that people don't see the gears turning below the surface and, and uh, what it takes to operate the resort. Yeah. When we met for coffee last fall, I remember telling you about the little airport that was here. We came for dinner. With, mm-hmm. We took our daughter here for dinner. And then we walked over to the little airstrip and saw the planes. And so is that, how long has that been around? That actually, the government asked us to build that as an auxiliary airstrip when the U.S. was fearing communist attack and thought that Burlington was in imminent danger. And so they wanted an additional space in the area to be able to land planes. So we transitioned lawns into and fields into an airstrip and it was paid to be maintained for some time. And now it's, we've kept it up because it is such a spot that I think there are very few opportunities for people regionally to fly and have a restaurant right there, right off the airstrip. And we're reminded annually by at least a few people saying, please, this is an amazing amenity, keep it here. It's entertaining for guests. We have people that will fly in to stay here, but increasingly it's just folks having a place, a destination to fly to. Yeah. It's fun just to, too, I think we saw a couple of little planes take off mm-hmm. when, when we were here. And so it's just like a fun little thing to do, to do when you're here. Yes. None of the Beach family have ever been pilots. So people often ask if we have our own plane and no, we do not. <laughs> <laughs> if you're describing this place to someone, they'll say like, oh, it's kind of like the place in the Catskills with dirty dancing. Mm-hmm. Like, does that come up a lot for you? Or is it like, no, we don't want to be associated with that? You know, I, I once mentioned that to someone that was doing marketing for us and they sort of cringed and said, please tell me that's not how you describe Basin <laughs> Harbor. <laughs> Uh, I do find for our international clientele, it really evokes an immediate sense of what the resort is. And people will often, in trying to say, you know, this feels so familiar, that's where they'll put their finger to say that that's what it reminds them of. I'm okay with it. I think it's wholesome. I think it's fun. There's actually a documentary piece on Netflix about the making of Dirty Dancing. And I think that really explains it. If you grew up in this kind of resort environment, 
vacationing to the same place, connecting with non-family vacationers that were there at the same time you were, developing a relationship with a staff member when you went on vacation. If any of that is familiar, I think that 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 people really see that when they're here. People that are used to a different type of vacationing or a different social environment might not get that feeling when they're here or it might not speak to them in the same way. Right, but. right. But it is a good reference point, you know. It is, it is. Definitely. And people love that movie. Yes. I love that movie. I do too. <laughs> and is Basin Harbor, you know, when you come here, you turn off from 22A and you take Panton Road. And sometimes I'll see like, oh, Basin Harbor's in Virgins, or I'll see Panton or Ferrisburg. So like what officially, what town are we officially in? We're officially in Ferrisburg. The city of Virgins is one square mile yeah, and is right on or overlaps with Otter Creek. So Otter Creek actually divides the town of Ferrisburg in half. So we refer to this as West Ferrisburg versus North Ferrisburg. Something that is 15 minutes up the lake or five or 10 minutes up the lake from Basin Harbor is a 25 minute drive to drive into Regens and through and around. Right. Because we're in a small part of Vermont, there are not the resources here that there are in bigger areas. So our post office is in Virgins. Yeah. So our postal address is Virgins, Vermont. We have a 475 number phone number, so 802-475, and that is a Panton phone number. And technically, we're in the town of Ferrisburg. Town of Ferrisburg, okay. Did you go to school in Virgins? Is that... I went to Ferrisburg Elementary School, which yeah. is in North Ferrisburg. So okay. I had about a 30, 45 minute bus ride each way. And then Virgins Union High School takes students from Virgins and the four neighboring towns. So the, the union part of the high school is brings a big radius of children together. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so people, even though you're technically not in Virgins, people associate the resort with Virgins. And Virgins is kind of the big town or the, I guess it's yes, a little city, it right? It is a little city, yes. <laughs> so that's the, you know, that's where you go to town, I guess. So I find that Virgins is such an interesting place because, right, I think it's Vermont's first city and then it's at least one of the smallest cities in the country, if not the smallest. I've talked to different people and gotten different answers yes. about that. But anyway, I remember I had a lot of older siblings who went to UVM and we would drive from Southern Vermont and we'd come through Virgins. And this was like in the 1980s. And Virgins was very different back then the way it is now. You know, now it's, it's just has this more charming feel than maybe it did 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how Virgins has changed or compare it from to when you were a kid to now? Like, how do you think it's changed? Yeah, I have, my earliest memories of Virgins are going to a French restaurant that used to be on the green called Christophe's. And I remember going there with my parents, but beyond that, we didn't hang out in Virgins. It wasn't a place that you wanted to be. We didn't go for walks there. My friends lived outside of the city of Virgins, even if they were right on the on the fray of the city. So I don't have a lot of memories of seeing that kind of grunge, as I would call it. Uh, I've heard stories of upholstered couches outside on the streets, more bars than restaurants, uh, just a, a different scene yeah. in terms of the environment. But but really, when I was in high school uh, was when the revitalization started, and that was kicked off with a group of local residents funding the renovation of the Virgins Opera House and then sort of slowly moving its way downtown. Virgins has the Virgins Partnership, which allows us to have a, a formal organization overseen and become a what's called a designated downtown, which opens up the city for grant funding and just 
an influx of resources that an unorganized city wouldn't have options for. So that really has helped feed development through and caring citizens. And, you know, I've been here long enough. I was actually reflecting that in 2014, the Vermont Council on Rural Development came to Regenz and did focus groups on what we should be doing, how the citizens should organize their energy. And we landed on economic development, which was before that became a buzzword in in the state and country, developing the basin so people are able to boat up from Lake Champlain and really creating more of a welcoming environment and a transition to get people downtown because even today there aren't sidewalks that and crosswalks that connect it safely for people. And the fourth was, I think, walkways and crossroads and things like that. And so I got involved on the economic development side, which was a really great way to springboard me into the local community. I thereafter got involved with Addison County Economic Development. So even at that point in the 2000 teens, the city was still working on how can we make this better. And, and since then, they've added illuminated crosswalk lights and, and additional elements downtown that, that really help make it more pedestrian friendly and a place that you want to be and not just parking in front of a business going in and getting right back in your car and leaving. Mm-hmm. So... Now, I think I'm also at an age where I'm engaging more in the community. I think when you're younger, you're either following your parents or a school schedule. I I didn't do sports when I was younger, so I know the track team might have run through town. I was never, never that way. So it's been great to see it evolve and particularly knowing the business owners that are in town and hearing their struggles, but also seeing their triumphs and and how they're making things work. Mm -hmm. So. When you drive through town, you want to stop. I always feel mm-hmm. that way when I drive through. Like, oh, I have this, on, the, on my way here this morning, I stopped by three squares and just got a got a coffee. And it's just a nice place to be. And it um, is. And I have a very different memory from the '80s, where you know we just sort of drove through, and there maybe wasn't much there. But it's really the community's just done an incredible job in in making Virgins what it what it is today. And it feels you know friendly and welcoming and. Yeah, all that. So absolutely. That is an element that I love about Vermont and and our area is I see people that I know when I go out. And my husband has a great story of being with a friend from out of state in town. And he said hi to three people along the way. And his friend said, what are you, the mayor? (laughs) You know, you just you don't have that. And uh, when I moved to Boston, I started waving and saying hello to everyone that I saw. And (laughs) the same thing in New York. And all of my friends are like, we don't do that here. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Well, I was thinking about that when we met for coffee back in November at three squares, all these people were saying hello to you. And you were saying, you know, hello back. And Mm -hmm. you you knew a lot of people in there. And I just thought that's so nice. Um, Like, you know, you grew up in this area, you know, a lot of people, but just that small town vibe, I think Mm -hmm. is, is really nice. So is there anything in particular that you love most about Virgins? We've touched a little bit about, even though it's a city, it's still that small town feel. I think, you know, one of the first things that I remember turning in Virgins was the food scene and via Black Sheep coming into town. Michelle Mahe was the executive chef and director of their, I mean, small but culinary program. And I was very fond of him when he was alive. It was really great to talk with him about how he developed the restaurant. And it blew people's minds, the the quality of food, the flavors, 
a very unique price point of all the appetizers being one price and all the entrees being another so that you weren't influenced by, do I want to spend more or less on my meal tonight? And that to me, the culinary scene has really kept up with, with that introduction from Michelle. So that is, I'm really proud of that in Virgin's. You know, we want our guests at Basin Harbor to stay here, ideally, and spend all of their (laughs) ancillary spend at the resort. But it is really a point of pride that they can go into Virgin's and find a good meal and find other options. And I think it is, it truly is the analogy of all boats rise in the harbor. If we're increasing our quality here, it pushes in town to increase their quality as well. So that to me, it would be hard to live in a city without a good culinary scene. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So it's been 10 years since you've been back. Yes. Right? Yeah. So what do you think has been the most rewarding part for you coming back to Vermont personally or professionally? Mm-hmm. I'm very fortunate that I have a big local family here. My dad's side of the family, a lot of the family members moved to the area and my cousins have all stayed. So in about a 25 mile radius, I've got about 25 family members, which I'm very fortunate to have. But I've also really built a family of friends here in the state. And that's evolved from when I was in high school. And uh, they're really the reason that I'm still here. It all comes back to community for me. And if I lived in a, a box and wasn't able to see people or connect with them and collaborate, that really would stifle my life here in Vermont. So that for me is is one of the things that I look to with a lot of gratitude and love meeting new people, love connecting new people, uh, and love what can blossom from that. To learn more about Basin Harbor, visit basinharbor.com. Thanks for listening to Happy Vermont. As always, feel free to email me with any questions, comments, or story ideas at hello at happyvermont.com or visit my website at happyvermont.com. Thanks for listening. Take care and talk to you soon.